which I'm London Lopate. Amy B. Ziegert, a political science professor at Stanford University, warns, quote, the U.S. is losing its intelligence advantage because technology is changing the circumstances. Artificial intelligence, AI, social media, quantum computing, and the Internet are new elements in the balance of power. And as a result, our power grids, water supply, elections, corporate network servers, and nuclear weapons have become vulnerable. Professor Ziegert's book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence, is published by Princeton University Press, and it brings her to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is fascinating stuff. Uh, You reported last September in The Atlantic on on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks about a pattern of lack of resources, priorities, and organization then that seem to be repeating themselves today. So how much has changed since 9-11? Well, there's good news and bad news. You know, a lot's changed since 9-11. But as I write in the book, an intelligence official shortly after 9-11 told me, and it's a haunting comment, his chief worry was by the time we master the al-Qaeda problem, would al-Qaeda be the problem? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what's come to pass. So our intelligence agencies have been remarkably reformed to deal with counterterrorism, But the threat landscape today, of course, is now very different than it was 20 years ago. And so we're struggling again to adapt to the technological challenges that you mentioned at the top of the show. For example, a host of new technologies such as AI that the intelligence community is being forced to adapt to. What's the power of AI in regard to our national security? Well, like every new technology, there's promise and peril. Uh, And AI has a a host of capabilities that are helping us in everything from um, medical uh, discoveries uh, to pattern recognition and intelligence. But the challenge with AI is that it's it's good with some things and not good with others. Um, AI is really good at, uh, you know, understanding uh, the surface to air missile sites in an area of China. But AI is not good at helping with creative endeavors or uh, intelligence challenges that don't rely on big data. For example, will Iran get a nuclear weapon? There is no amount of data and no algorithm is going to be able to help you figure that out. So the challenge with AI for U.S. intelligence agencies is to adopt much more of it because we're struggling with a lot of data, but to understand also where it can help and where humans really need to maintain that advantage. Vladimir Putin said that whoever's able to lead in AI will become the ruler of the world. Are we seeing that at work in the current crisis in Ukraine? I think we're seeing a lot going on in the current crisis in Ukraine. You know, you see with AI a a, a real effort on the part of Russia and a part of China to it's a competition. It's a technology competition with implications for commercial uh, viability and implications for geopolitics. I think the most important thing from an intelligence perspective we're seeing right now with Russia and Ukraine is a very new strategy the Biden administration is using to reveal a tremendous amount of intelligence. And that's part of what I think is a counter-information warfare strategy that they're employing. Well, one computer scientist projects that AI could eliminate 40 percent of jobs worldwide in the next 15 to 25 years. I hope that doesn't apply to talk show hosts. 
Well, you know, AI is really a transformational technology. When we think about uh, how fast machines can can uh, sift through complex data uh, compared to humans, it's really extraordinary what AI can do. You know, AI can find patterns in large amounts of data that are undetectable to the human eye. But the, one of the challenges with AI, I mean, and there are many, is that AI can't explain the results that it gets. And so from an intelligence context, you know, I often talk about how analysis isn't just about analysis. Analysis is about persuasion. So imagine walking into the Oval Office and saying, Mr. President, we believe with high confidence Russia is going to invade Ukraine. And the president says, how do you know? And you say, well, the AI told me <laughs> it's not very persuasive. Yeah. And that's a challenge with using AI in the intelligence context. What about Internet connectivity? Doesn't the connection of devices and the way companies like Facebook are using algorithms to determine what people read, influence what they think, create trends, manipulate the public at large? And, and how does that apply to the things you're talking about, intelligence well, gathering? Well, I think about two different aspects of Internet connectivity. The first is that when you think about it from a, a national security perspective, it's an attack surface. Anything that is smart Anything that's connected to the Internet is an attack surface for cyber attackers to steal your data, to disrupt critical infrastructure and to cause harm to the nation. And that attack service is growing exponentially. So think about smart refrigerators, your smart doorbell, your smart bird feeder, your Fitbit. All of these things are vectors for cyber attackers. That's the first challenge with cyberspace. In fact, you've the devoted second, a section of your book to cyber attacks, but you also talk about cyber attacks that we, that the United States has conducted. Yes, so we do it too. Uh, we have offensive cyber capabilities, but the difference with the United States, and this is what's new in cyber, is that we're simultaneously powerful and vulnerable. Right. Because we rely on the Internet for so much of our daily life. North Korea is not nearly as vulnerable as we are because they don't have very many websites and they're a very poor country. So we're uniquely vulnerable in cyberspace compared to physical space. We used uh, a cyber attack uh, against the nuclear facilities in Iran. Yes. So this is a very. But you said also refrigerators. Well, one and then the other. <laughs> yes. So there was the first reported cyber attack using a refrigerator happened almost 10 years ago. This is this stuff has been around for a long time. Uh, but that attack that you mentioned, which has been publicly reported to be uh, caused by uh, the U.S. and the Israelis together, was really a watershed moment. It was the first known cyber attack massive cyber attack that caused real physical destruction, in this case, destruction of Iranian nuclear centrifuges. And you said it had to be conducted very carefully so that they didn't suspect that they were being uh, subject to a cyber attack. It, yes, it's a remarkable piece of code um, where, like something out of a Mission Impossible movie, uh, the code caused the centrifuges to spin faster than they normally do and then more slowly, which caused them to break apart. But while the whole thing was happening over a period of many days, uh, the malware also made it seem like everything was normal. You know, like the fake video in the movie that shows the security folks that everything looks like it's all right while the while, uh, you know, the, you're inside and and conducting your operation. You discuss the seven deadly biases that make intelligence analysis so difficult. 
this is something that I've that I care a lot about. So all of us have these cognitive biases. I don't mean political bias. I mean, just basic shortcuts that we use to do things like pick a movie or select who we're going to vote for. Um, and these kinds of cognitive biases can be helpful, but in intelligence, they can be deadly. And, you know, one example is you know, if you look at uh, optimism bias, we're all more optimistic about uh, the world. Uh, than, than we should be. Uh, optimism bias is a good reason why we failed to see China's entry into the Korean War. You know, Douglas MacArthur thought he was going to win. He didn't think the Chinese were going to intervene. And he discounted all the intelligence pouring in that suggested China was about to enter the war in a big way. How important are technology giants like Google in tracking intelligence information? In well, 2019, have- Google announced quantum supremacy. <laughs> Yes. So what we're facing now, if we compare this moment to the Cold War, is these technology companies are at the cutting edge of innovation with quantum, with AI, a number of technologies. And that's new. In the Cold War, technological innovations started in the government and then they became commercialized. Think about GPS satellites and navigation or the Internet, which started in the government. But now it's the opposite. And so the government has to work more collaboratively with the private sector to understand and adopt technology for national security. It's been argued that the only sure winners in arms races are the corporations that supply the tools of the trade. Well, I think are we enriching Google and others? Well, the challenge today, as, as you know, is that these companies like Google are producing technological tools that are dual use. This too is is relatively unprecedented, the extent to which technology is dual use. And by dual use, I mean there's commercial benefit and there's also military benefit. So if you think about facial recognition technology, for example, you know, you can tag people in your photos, but it also can be used to track people around the world. And so that's one of the challenges is that these companies aren't just companies. They're producing things, whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not, that can be used for political and military purposes. Haven't Chinese military leaders made synthetic biology, the engineering of of living organisms, a top priority? What's that? Yes. And yes. And in fact, it's one of the areas that China is moving aggressively into. You know, one of the interesting things I found in this book is that we don't have to guess about what China is interested in. The Chinese have publicly declared what kinds of technologies they want to attain supremacy in. They've had documents and lots of statements about it. And synthetic biology and, and biology in general, the life sciences are, are among the top priorities for the Chinese Communist Party. So how are these technologies changing the way that intelligence agencies are tracking information? Well, I think if you think about all these technologies converging in this moment, which I think they are, you think about the Internet, social media, quantum, artificial intelligence, they're challenging intelligence in five key ways. The first, there are more threats. We talked about cyberspace, for example. The second is there's more speed. Threats are moving faster, and that's a challenge. The third is more data. Intelligence analysts are drowning in data and they have to figure out how to sort through it much faster than they have. The fourth big challenge for intelligence, more customers who don't have security clearances who need intelligence, like voters about who need intelligence about foreign election interference. And then there's the fifth big challenge, which is more competitors in intelligence. So spying isn't just for superpower governments anymore. Anybody with a cell phone and an Internet connection cannot collect, analyze and produce intelligence. And that's a big change. 
So it's not just intelligence agencies, although I assume there are a fair number of them out there. Yes. And we see this, too, playing out right now with Russia and Ukraine, this open source or publicly available intelligence world. You know, there are universities and organizations and individuals and journalists that are using just commercially available satellite imagery and other open data to track what Putin's troops are doing and where they're moving. We see it on the front pages of The New York Times, even just today, open source intelligence. Uh, I I just thought it was... uh... Uh, that it was just planes that we were uh, taking. We were taking pictures as a result. But uh, we're we're doing a lot of this as well. Uh, What is intelligent sense making and and how is that changing? Well, I think, you know, when I when you think about what does what at root is intelligence, intelligence is an effort to make sense of the world to provide policymakers with what they call in the business decision advantage. And the basic idea is the more information you have about what's coming, uh, the faster you get it compared to your adversaries, the better decisions you're likely to make. And so this sense-making business, though, is getting much more challenging. We're all awash in this information, some of it fake. Uh, It's coming at us from every direction. And intelligence agencies have to make sense of all of that faster than everybody else. And and separate fact from fiction or attempts to trick us? Absolutely. That's, you know, you've hit on one of the key challenges in intelligence, which, of course, our adversaries are trying to trick us. They're trying to hide what they're doing. They're trying to deceive us. And thanks to the Internet, they can actually deceive domestic populations at scale with information warfare. And then people disagree on uh, what we are seeing. For example, uh, there was um, there were many accusations of uh, the use of all of this technology to influence uh, the election in uh, in 2016. But um, I haven't seen any proof of it. Well, I think there have been a number of bipartisan investigations, including from the Senate Intelligence Committee on a bipartisan basis that offers actually quite a lot of proof about what the Russians were up to in the 2016 election. Uh, They have examples from fake Facebook accounts that pitted Americans against each other, all organized by the Kremlin, but the American protesters didn't know it. So I think actually there's been a fair bit of evidence about Russia's involvement in the 2016 presidential election. Now, what was the effect of that involvement? That's a big question for debate. You're listening to Let It Locate at Large at WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Amy B. Ziegart, whose uh, latest book is Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, A History and Future of American Intelligence from Princeton University Press. She's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, a professor of political science at Stanford University, and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. She also has uh, been a, a national security analyst for CNN, MSNBC, Fox News Channel, and National Public Radio. You write that technology is challenging American intelligence agencies in three ways. One, creating uncertainties and empowering new adversaries. Yeah, you know, and again, I think the Cold War is a useful baseline comparison. If we were having this discussion during the Cold War, we would agree, I think, that the 
top threats facing the United States all revolved around the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union. And by, <laughs> to, and by the way, wouldn't we be collecting that information through spies rather than... Yes, <laughs> yes, we would. A clandestinely acquired intelligence certainly has played a large role and will continue to play a large role. But this openly available information on Twitter, uh, on um, on uh, you know commercially available satellite imagery, is playing a bigger role. But the threat landscape today is so much more complex than it was in the Cold War. Many more countries, non-state actors, powerful states, weak states, and technology is leveling in many ways the playing field. So weak actors can actually exert tremendous damage empowered by technology. And they create more data. That's the second uh, challenge, you say. You write that in 2019, Internet users posted 500 million tweets, sent 294 billion emails, and posted 350 million photos on Facebook every day. Is that what's so, called open source intelligence? <laughs> I'm so glad you picked up that sentence because that just astounded me when I when I read that about the just crushing amount of data that we are producing every single day. Some of that's open source. You know, your private Facebook account is your private Facebook account. And the U.S. government can't just willy nilly dig into your private Facebook account. There are real restrictions on what our uh, intelligence agencies can do. They'd be so bored. <laughs> There'd be a lot of cat pictures. I, I'm, yeah, there's a lot of cat pictures, a lot of, hey, it's Tuesday. Look at what, how I am. Or 10 years ago, I had dinner with some person you never heard of. That is true. But I will say this, you know, I mean, we laugh about it. But if you look at what the Chinese government is doing, they're hacking into a number of different databases. And you might ask, well, why do they need to hack into Anthem Health Insurance? Why are they hacking into Marriott? They're pulling together data about the health histories, travel histories, and security clearances of uh, up to millions of people working in the U.S. government. So when you put a lot of that, not maybe not the cat pictures, but when you put some of that other data together, you can get a pretty uh, powerful picture of what people are doing and how a foreign intelligence service might take advantage of that. Didn't open source intel factor into the raid on Osama bin Laden's Pakistani compound? It did. It's a really interesting example. So when our SEAL team went into Pakistan, the Pakistani military did not detect them. But a local guy living in Abbottabad, Pakistan, did. He heard strange noises outside his window at one in the morning, and he ended up live tweeting the entire bin Laden operation. Well, what about when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014? Yeah, this is a, another great example. The the last time uh, Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, the best intelligence about troop movements did not come from secrets stolen from a prime minister safe or an intercepted phone conversation. It came from selfies of Russian soldiers who were <laughs> taking pictures of themselves and posting them on social media for their family and friends with Ukrainian highway signs in the background and timestamps on those photographs. So I mentioned all of the data, that, including things like that. Are agencies forced to sort through excessive amounts of data? And how are they dealing with that? They are. I mean, if you think about intelligence as searching for needles and haystacks, right, trying to understand indicators of what an adversary might be doing, now imagine those haystacks are growing and growing and growing every day. So it is a crushing amount of information. 
and they're struggling to deal with it. So I think, you know, there's a big move afoot to adopt more artificial intelligence to try to sort through this information. Uh, imagine if you had an algorithm that said, you know, I know your account is to focus on China and its uh, activities in the South China Sea. You know, the algorithm has spit out now these key articles that have come out all over the world in the past 24 hours that you might want to take a look at. Things like that would be very helpful for analysts. So AI can help to verify authentic threats versus fakery. And it can help you sort the wheat uh, from the chaff, right? Identify what's important from what isn't. It can, it can help. It's not the solution, but it's part of the solution. The third challenge you cite is secrecy. How is the balance between secrecy and transparency for the intelligence community changing in the digital age? Well, I think we can see it changing almost in real time. So until now, the intelligence agencies in the U.S., and there are 18 of them, I think many people would be surprised to know there are so many, they had to operate in secret and they were comfortable operating in secret. But today they have to operate much more in the open. And we're seeing this with the revelation of information with Russia and Ukraine. And they have to operate in the open to communicate with voters about election interference. And they, and they have to communicate with tech leaders and infrastructure executives about cyber threats to their systems. That's an unnatural act for spy agencies. They're used to producing only for the classified world but they cannot do that and do their jobs uh, successfully anymore. They have to produce and interact openly with the rest of American society more, too. The COVID-19 pandemic has had an impact on scientific discovery and methodology. Has it had an effect on intelligence tools and capabilities? It's such a good question. You know, it's, it's something that I've been asking folks inside the intelligence community as I was finishing my book. And the answer I got was that it has, like everybody else, the intelligence community had to deal with remote work in COVID. And so they had to figure out and think about that for a minute. If you're used to only working in classified facilities on classified computer systems where everything is very tightly controlled, what do you do now when you have to work from home? That is a technological challenge. It's a cultural challenge. And so what I heard from them, folks inside the community, is that they got a lot better at figuring out how to work on the unclassified level for as much as they can while protecting our national security. And that's to the that's to the good for our intelligence agencies. They need to be able to work more uh, effectively in the, at a lower level of classification when possible. In the past, national security policy was determined by the government, but you write that increasingly in the digital age, tech policy is public policy. Social media companies are deciding what presidential messages to the world can be blocked or shared. Software developers are affecting how vulnerable the global products will be to cyber attack and, and so on. What's the responsibility of tech companies? And how accountable well, do they have to be to public security? Well, I think their responsibility is growing. You know, especially these large tech companies really have the capabilities uh, of governments from times gone by. When, they, when you think about the, the role they play, the information that they allow or don't allow, the data they're aggregating, the power they have in the world is quite remarkable. And so they're very uncomfortable for understandable reasons, uh, taking on that national security role. Because of course, large companies have global markets, they have global shareholders, they have global employees, 
And so some of their interests are aligned with U.S. national security, but not all of their interests are aligned. And so I think we've seen in the past few years is a better relationship between large tech companies in particular and the U.S. government. And the reason that there's a better relationship now than there used to be is China. The China threat is not just a threat to U.S. national security. It's a threat to companies and their intellectual property. And it's increasingly a threat to their global viability as China really clamps down on on tech companies wanting to do business in China. So doesn't the competition between the United States and China come down to competition in technology? China has, has announced plans to become the global leader in AI by 2030. I I couldn't agree with you more. I think technology competition is the key competition between the U.S. and China today. Whoever wins that technological competition, particularly in key areas like AI, will have a long-term advantage both commercially and economically and politically and militarily. So where is the U.S. failing and, and what can we do? Are we doing enough against countries like China that are trying to uncover secrets about our government, corporations, universities and, and think tanks and the like? Well, I think this is really an adapt or fail moment for our intelligence agencies. And what I see is you know, they're trying very hard to, to change and to meet this new moment, but they need help. And the biggest area where I think we have room for improvement is the use of this open source or publicly available information. You know, the internet is free and open for China and our adversaries to steal our data blind and to collect all sorts of information about Americans. Uh, But China's internet is not free and open even for the Chinese. And so we're at a disadvantage and we need to reform our intelligence community to better deal with this challenge. And if I could pick one thing, it would be focusing reforms on on, um, making better use of open source information and adopting new technologies much faster and more fully than we've done so far. And you write, quote, America's intelligence agencies must adapt or they'll fail. The biggest surprise attacks in modern American history, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, and Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election occurred because spy organization didn't change fast or fully enough to meet emerging threats. Are we lagging behind the rest of the world? I think we are lagging behind and we're lagging behind non-government entities that can use what's openly available to track what's going on. You know, one of the things that I picked up on in the 2016 election, you might recall the intelligence community issued a threat assessment about Russian election interference. Uh, But what they didn't see coming, the one thing they missed was the Russians use of Facebook and other social media accounts to wage deception campaigns. And the, the organization that first noticed this activity wasn't a spy agency. It was Facebook. <laughs> so there's a lot more work to do in the intelligence community. Mark Zuckerberg finally worked doing something positive for America. <laughs> uh, you spoke with hundreds of current and former intelligence officials for this book. What did they say the real day-to-day life of a secret agent was like? And, and, and what kinds of challenges do they feel that they're facing these days? You know, it really runs the gamut. One of the things that I'm really proud of in this book is that I have voices from real people in these intelligence agencies coming through and talking about what it's like to be them. So I have a lot of professor type analysis of what's going on, but I wanted insiders in the intelligence community to share with readers 
um, what ethical challenges they faced. When did they tell their kids what they did for a living and what their best and worst moments were? So I have one, for example, that talked to me about what happened when he was posted abroad and he had a credible death threat against not just him, but his family hmm. and how he had to tell his kids how to be safe on the streets and notice when something changes or when something seems anomalous. Did he find he out to- who made the threat? He didn't tell me whether they ever found out who made the threat, but fortunately it didn't turn out uh, to be anything, but he had to tell his kids, you know, and imagine telling your kids that they had to keep themselves safe by making sure um, that they notice what's going on as they walk to school. China is often considered the greatest threat to U.S. intelligence, not Russia. Well, I think it depends on whether you're looking short term or long term. Obviously, in the short term, Russia is a much greater threat to the global world order than China is. But over the long term, China poses a much more significant intelligence challenge. You know, China has already stolen billions and billions of dollars of intellectual property. Uh, American military officials have said there is not a single major weapon system in China that isn't based on stolen American technology. And that's just the beginning. The FBI is opening a counterintelligence China investigation every 12 hours. Mm. This is a major threat to our country. In 2015, the Chinese hacked over 21 million security clearance records, giving it highly sensitive information that could be used to coerce or recruit Americans serving in government. Absolutely. And this was an intelligence coup for the Chinese and an intelligence nightmare for the United States. These are, if you've ever seen any of these records or had to fill out a security clearance form, these are very detailed records about the foreigners you know, the medical conditions you have, the financial interests you have. It is for the Chinese intelligence services a goldmine. Didn't a tech executive say that he viewed the U.S. government just like China's People's Liberation Army as an adversary that needed to be stopped from surreptitiously penetrating his systems? Yes, this was a really interesting moment in in 2014. So this is the context is the Snowden revelations, which really created dramatic distrust between tech companies and the U.S. government. And so I took a, a group of congressional staffers to this tech company and this senior executive stood there and, t- and pointed at them and said, you know, I think of you, meaning the U.S. government, just like the China's People's Liberation Army. You're an adversary I'm trying to keep out of my systems. That was a, a real jaw dropping moment for everyone in that room. Things have gotten better since then. I mean, it's hard to get worse from that moment. But the relations between the U.S. government and those big tech companies have been improving. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. with Professor Amy Ziegert. Uh, I want to let you know that if you're enjoying this discussion, would like to have a copy of her book, The First Two Listeners Who Sign Up to Become Members of WBAI During Today's Show with a Contribution of $75 or More, will receive a free copy of Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. You can participate in this offer by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212 
209-2950 during today's show. And don't forget to make that $75 donation in the name of Leonard Lopit at large. And, and thank you very much. Um, <laughs> Professor Zieger, isn't uh, America's spy history relatively brief compared to espionage in other parts of the world? It is. And if we think about, you know, in China, the art of war was written 2000 years before mm -hmm. the American Revolution. And so we're relative newcomers to this big, bad world of espionage, although espionage played a crucial role in the Revolutionary War. George Washington wanted to uh, have spies. Oh, he was an avid spy master. He had his own code number. He used invisible ink and he used deception really to trick the British into thinking his troops were much stronger than they really were, which enabled him to select what battles he could fight and ultimately win the war. So uh, what were the most effective and init uh, effective initiatives and operatives in our history? Well, in the early days, one of my favorite uses of deception was Washington's use of French bread or French bake ovens. Mm. So I, I'm sure most Americans remember that the crucial end of the war battle was the surrender at Yorktown. But for Washington to make that happen, he had to convince the British in New York that he was staying in New York while he secretly moved his troops 200 miles to the south. And he did this by staging bake ovens because they were a source of food for the troops. So he had guards guarding these ovens and conspicuously producing thousands of loaves of bread. But it was all a ruse to convince the British that he was staying in one place when he was really moving to another. That's one of my favorite examples of intelligence in American history. Oh, did it apply to uh, other things that happened in the 19th century, the War of 1812, the Civil War, uh, or the beginning of the 20th century, World War I, or is most of the development uh, the result of the Cold War? Most of it is the Cold War. So one of the interesting patterns in American history is that intelligence played a crucial role, not just Washington. Benjamin Franklin conducted information warfare, cranking out fake news reports in Europe to win support for the war. So you have this incredible use of intelligence at the founding of our country, and then it languishes hmm. for the next... 200 years, roughly. So in the War of 1812, our intelligence was terrible. That's why the, the Madisons barely left the White House in time before the British torched it. Their intelligence was terrible. In the Civil War, it was disjointed. And we didn't have a permanent peacetime intelligence capability with the CIA until after World War II. So it's a relatively recent development. Part of this story involves traitors and double agents. Was Robert Hansen the most damaging mole in FBI history? I think most people would argue that he is the most damaging mole in FBI history. And his story is really an incredible one. He was in the FBI for more than two decades. By all accounts, he was a family man. He was um, you know, a, a well-regarded citizen. And he was betraying the United States for almost the entirety of his FBI career. And he was caught doing a dead drop of uh, classified documents under a bridge in a Virginia park. And do we know why? You know, the typical motive for traders, at least during the Cold War, was money. And that appears to be his primary motivation. But he also is well known to have been very disgruntled. He thought he was much smarter than other people. He wanted to show how cunning he was, how clever he was. And so it was a mix of motives for him. Has a psychological study been done to explain why some people will betray their country? 
So the, there's a little organization in the Defense Department that has actually looked at all of the Americans who have been arrested on espionage charges over the past 50, 60 years or so. And they tracked based on those documents the, the changing motives of traitors. And what they found, and remember, these are only the ones who got caught, not the ones who got away. So it could the real story could be a little different. But what they found is that in the Cold War, the number one motive really was money, um, followed by ideology. And now that's changing. Now the number one motive appears to be conflicting views or conflicting loyalties to different countries with money as a secondary motive. Should we be concerned that there are people in this country who think that Putin has done a good thing? I think we should all be concerned about that. There's no question that Putin, including a former president, by the way. Yeah, I mean, there's no question Putin has violated the sovereignty of a nation. He has uh, flouted international law and and people are going to die because of Vladimir Putin's aggression. There's no question about that. He's on the wrong side of history. Uh, But we are split on this. It is not just spies. It's uh, television personalities, for example. It's a very interesting development about, and I think it stems from a worldview of America first. Either he's uh, lauded because he's a strong leader or we have no dog in the fight of Russia and Ukraine. That's, I think, that perspective. I think that's wrong. The one thing we know about the world today, even more than the world of yesteryear, is that we're all connected. Good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods are all connected. We can't hive off conflict in one part of the world and think it won't affect the rest of the world, in particular, a part of the world where we have allied commitments to members of NATO. Intelligence agencies used to focus on on understanding foreign governments and terrorist groups. Uh, Has that changed? I don't think that's changed. The primary mission is really to understand the whole range of potential threats and, by the way, opportunities that the United States could seize to advance the national interest. It's just that that landscape has become much more crowded and it's changing much more rapidly. What first sparked your interest in spying secrets in American intelligence? Uh, Well, like most people, I always grew up loving spy-themed entertainment. Uh, But I actually stumbled into this business by accident. I was doing my doctoral dissertation, and I thought I was going to write about the National Security Council staff and its evolution. And I got back from a stint on the NSC staff, and I told my Ph.D. advisor, who was Condi Rice at the time, I think I know what I'm going to write about. And she said to me in a nicer way than this, but basically she told me it was a terrible topic (laughs) and I needed to go back to the library. And so I went back to the library and I found that the legislation that created the National Security Council and the Defense Department uh, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff also created this little debated provision about an agency no one much paid attention to at the time in 1947 called the Central Intelligence Mm. Agency. And I was hooked. Yes. uh, A friend of mine keeps on saying the word intelligence becomes confusing here. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned spytainment. Now, how does it influence the public? Uh, You say also military personnel and even Supreme Court justices? Yes. So I started writing this book initially because I taught a class at UCLA and I polled my students just kind of on a lark and I asked them, what their spy-themed entertainment viewing habits were. We were in LA, of course, so it's a natural question to ask. 
And what I found was my students didn't know anything about intelligence and what they knew they learned from the movies. And those who frequently watch spy themed entertainment were statistically more likely to support all sorts of very aggressive counterterrorism techniques like waterboarding. Hmm. And so I dug into this more deeply and I found two things. Number one, that spy themed entertainment was influencing public opinion at a national level. I found the same results in national polls. And then I found that spy themed entertainment was also influencing policymakers. And so Supreme Court justices uh, were talking about how they would rule on cases based on Jack Bauer plot lines. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> I found the Senate Intelligence Committee in holding a confirmation hearing of CIA director nominee Leon Panetta asking Panetta about a ticking time bomb scenario, which, of course, only happens in the movies. So they're taking these fictional plot lines and deliberating about real policy based on them. Peter Ernest, a CIA veteran who ran undercover operatives during the Cold War and acted as the first director of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., died the other day. He was a real spy who wanted to help the public understand what it is to be a spy. Does the public need to know about U.S. intelligence and, 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 uh, and how would that help? Absolutely, the public needs to know. And I love the work of the Spy Museum. And I think they'd be the first to say that they take spy themed entertainment as a good launch pad for educating the public about what real espionage is all about. And I think there are two reasons why the public needs to know about intelligence and what these agencies do. The first is basic civics. You know, if members of the public don't care and don't know, members of Congress won't care and won't know. It's really important for oversight that voters care and understand what these agencies do to make them more effective and to prevent abuses. And the second reason is these agencies are going to be interacting with all of us a lot more for the reasons I described about election interference and cyber threats that are affecting all of us. And so this is going to be part of our everyday lives, interacting with the intelligence community. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Amy B. Ziegert, whose book Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence is published by Princeton University Press. You've noted a lack of intelligence experience in Congress. Haven't you worked with the U.S. Congressional Intelligence Oversight Committees? I have. And to be fair, you know, the staffers on those committees and some members on those committees really do exert a lot of time, spend a lot of time on intelligence. But what I found is the general pattern of oversight is bad. It's very uh, it's it's poor. And the reason is members of Congress don't have strong incentives to spend time on intelligence matters. Voters don't care. There's no Iowa equivalent for intelligence. So anyone elected from Iowa has to care about agriculture because that's the business. There's no Iowa equivalent that makes members of Congress have to pay attention to intelligence to get reelected. And they can't even talk about what they do. And so from an election standpoint, intelligence is a losing issue. And so it's a real act of patriotism when members of Congress actually spend their time doing homework on intelligence. But that doesn't usually happen. And you point out that most top 25 universities don't have a single course in intelligence. Uh, yes. Yeah, so what I what I also found is that academics don't study intelligence much either. And so I joke that uh, more uh, U.S. universities ranked by the U.S. News and World Report by the uh, in the top 25 offer courses on the history of rock and roll mm. than intelligence. 
which means students at these universities have a better chance of learning about U2 the band rather than U2 the spy plane. <laughs> How is a balance struck between protecting the American public and, and privacy? Intelligence agencies used to, to focus on understanding foreign governments and terrorist groups. Haven't, don't they also now look at uh, the, our own citizens? So there's really one intelligence agency of the 18 that has a domestic intelligence mission, and that's the FBI. And it's not a coincidence the FBI is within the Department of Justice, real concern about protecting civil liberties and American rights. Now, that's not to say our intelligence agencies haven't overstepped. They have. In the 50s and 60s and 70s, there were all sorts of illegal programs targeting Americans for surveillance. So there have been some dark days in the past. But the oversight has gotten a lot better since then. Uh, and so you know, we do have congressional oversight committees today. We didn't have them before the 1970s. And we do have real restrictions on what agencies like the CIA and the National Security Agency can do. They're training their intelligence collection abroad at foreign actors, not domestically at American citizens. How has China been so successful at stopping American spies? Hasn't it been reported that in the past 10 years, nearly all American spies in China were uncovered? It has been reported, and it's a very disturbing development in our espionage history. And there are really two theories. One is that there's a human mole, and there was one person who was charged with some relatively lower level crimes who was found to be spying on behalf of China, sort of a, a turncoat, if you will. But there's another investigation that I think is really compelling that finds that there were technological breaches. So in this particular case, a communication system, a computer communication system for intelligence officers to communicate with potential assets in China, these are people they're trying to vet, was breached. We know it was breached. And then it was discovered that the firewall between that system and the normal system for intelligence officers to communicate with their trusted sources in China was also breached. And as a result, almost all of our sources were either executed uh, or imprisoned in China over a, a, a period of time. So do we have an idea of how U.S. intelligence can be can improve? I think we Our do. counterintelligence approach? I think what we're seeing, we're seeing some of it actually playing out in the public domain. The CIA director, William Burns, uh, had a memo to the field uh, really encouraging people to get back to basics with counterintelligence. So how do you protect people? How do you protect information? Uh, that's really important to do. And I think we're seeing a lot more attention paid to counterintelligence, in part because technology means that breaches when someone decides they want to betray the country, that one person can do much more damage. So you asked me earlier about Robert Hansen. Well, it took Hansen years to ferret out about 6,000 documents, and he did them sort of one small garbage bag at a time. <laughs> but now traders can download millions and millions of pages of information uh, within minutes, if not months. And so the scale and speed of damage for an insider threat is much greater now than it was a few years ago. Although there also have been excesses, haven't there? Two of the most notorious oversight controversies in intelligence history involved the CIA's detention and interrogation program and the NSA's warrantless wiretapping program. 
Yes, those are two very controversial programs. And I think civil liberties and privacy advocates and human rights groups have been very concerned about those programs. And I think it's notable that those programs ended. Right. So the detention and interrogation program ended. And one part of the perhaps the most concerning part of warrantless wiretapping by the NSA, the metadata program, which was really collecting the basic information about millions of American phone calls, not the content, not the identities of the callers, but the number and time and duration of the call that was found to be uh, it was disconcerting to many Americans when it came to light and Congress ended it. So that program is no longer operating. Um, you know, it's important to bear in mind that after 9-11, there were programs that were undertaken uh, that weren't undertaken before 9-11. And even within the National Security Agency, I found with that warrantless wiretapping program, there was a lot of uh, concern. And at least one intelligence officer I know in the NSA resigned in protest over that particular program. A consequence of our adversarial relationship with China is a hunt for spies among scientists of Chinese descent who work in American universities called the China Initiative. According to the Wall Street Journal, cases are faltering. They are. And this initiative had the right idea, but was implemented so poorly. The wrongful targeting of uh, Chinese and Chinese-American scientists really disturbing. And so we have two problems. One is we're not doing enough to counter Chinese intelligence operations. And the other is we're doing too much and doing it the wrong way, questioning the patriotism. And, and it can quickly you know, descend into xenophobia. And so we have to do a better job, number one, at vetting people before they come to this country to study when, they're, when they are applying for their visas. And we have to have a more sophisticated approach to our counterintelligence uh, where we don't malign the reputations of people uh, who have done nothing wrong. But we also need an education function inside higher education. You know, there's a lot of counterintelligence activity going on or intelligence activity from foreign services going on on university campuses. There's no question about it. And so American universities need to be not so naive about what's happening on our campuses, particularly when it comes to scholars accepting money from Chinese institutions uh, to bring their intellectual property uh, to those Chinese institutions. Well, you teach at Stanford University. Haven't over 150 Stanford professors signed a letter to the attorney general asking the DOJ to get rid of this China initiative? Yes, I think this particular China initiative has been poorly implemented. But the basic idea, which is that we need to be more cognizant of efforts to recruit uh, American professors uh, and students uh, to uh, reveal technological uh, developments that could aid the Chinese Communist Party, that education needs to improve. We need to have more transparency and better reporting. When your research is funded by a foreign entity, the university needs to know about it. And if you're being funded by a U.S. government grant, the U.S. government needs to know about it. That's not to say everyone should be prosecuted. It is to say that that transparency is crucially important. Now, we have just about uh, a minute and a half or so, two minutes to go. Uh, have I left anything out? Is there anything that you think is important that we should also talk about? Well, I think you've actually covered the gamut of my book, which is a hard thing to do because it's a long book. 
Well, what's been the response to the book from the intelligence community and the military? You know, it's been a really interesting response to me. Because uh, as, as you know, in my other research, I've been very critical of U.S. intelligence agencies. I wrote an earlier book mm. about uh, that explained why our intelligence agencies failed to prevent 9-11. And so I've offered some pretty harsh criticism of our intelligence agencies. And with this book, I've been really gratified that at the response by intelligence and military officials. I think they, too, feel the need to educate the American public about what it is that they do the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, because a better informed public makes them more effective and sets the lines about what they should and shouldn't do because they're accountable to the American people and they know that and they believe it's important. Amy B. Ziegart, her book, Spies, Lies and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence is published by Princeton University Press. She's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, professor of political science at Stanford University, contributing writer at The Atlantic, and national security analyst for CNN, MSNBC, Fox News Channel, and the National Public Radio. And it has been my great pleasure to have her as a guest today on my show here on WBAI. Thank you so much for being such a great guest. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison for all of her help in preparing today's discussion. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. That's 212-209-2950. We need your help to continue to bring you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. I, I guarantee you... Um, you have, would not have heard a, a conversation of the sort that we just had on this show anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, the first two callers who make a contribution of $75 or more in the name of London Lopate at large right now will receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence by Amy B. Ziegard. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, with a monthly contribution of $10, $15, or any other amount that you choose. It's really great for us because it allows us to plan for the future. But either way, 
I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic 100% listener-sponsored station alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Mark Vonnegut will discuss his book, The Heart of Caring. I hope to see you then.